Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the, re- for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn men among many brothers." And that those whom he has predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, once wrote, Stand still. Keep the posture of an upright man, ready for action, expecting further orders, cheerfully and patiently waiting for the directing voice. And it will not be long ere God shall say to you as distinctly as Moses said to the people of Israel, go forward. So waiting on God. That's what we've been talking about for the last four weeks. And that's really what we've been doing for the last two months. And the reason why we've been talking about this is because we live in this tension between the reality that we are impatient and we hate to wait and the fact that we were created to do just that. We were created to wait. We live in this tension of waiting because we were designed to do so, but our flesh and our nature hates it, so we resent it, even though we need it. But the fact still remains that we were created to wait at many times in our lives And we were created to wait upon God himself. And so we begin this topic by asking the question of why we need to wait on God. And before I push forward, is everybody freezing to death or are we okay? We're okay? All right. We're good. (laughs) 
One of those blessings that kind of can be a curse at the same time, right? <laughs> half of you are okay, and half of you are like, man, you know, I got icicles, but more tension in our lives, right? And so we began this topic by asking the question of why we need to wait on God, and the short answer is that God is everything that we're not. That's the short answer. He is everything that we need. He is sovereign and in control. We are not. He is all good. We are not. He's all knowing. We are not. He works all things out for our good, and we don't always do that. We wait on God because we're completely dependent upon Him. That's the simple reason why. And then the second week, we talked about waiting on God when life changes, because if there's a constant in your life, is the fact that life will change. We need to rely upon Him when things change for His wisdom and guidance, right? Because things change, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, we has, it has consequences, good and bad. And so we need to rely on God when things do change in our lives. And then last week, we talked about waiting on God when life is hard, because another constant that's in our lives is the fact that you will experience difficult times in your lives. Right? Life is simply about struggling. That's the bottom line truth. We, we're fallen, broken people living in a fallen, broken world amongst other fallen, broken people. I don't know how it can be more simple than that. So what does it mean to wait on God then when things are hard? That's what we talked about. And some of the truths that we came to face to face with was the fact that everything that God does, he does for his glory, meaning sometimes he allows our suffering for his glory. And number two, that, he, that God makes us wait in our pain because he loves us because ultimately he's working those things out for our good. Which leads us to number three, we don't always see the big picture when we suffer. We can't see what God's doing. Right? But number four, God saving souls and accomplishing his plan is more important than our comfort. And that's just the bottom line truth. And number five, if God will, would, would tell us why we're suffering, that oftentimes we wouldn't even understand why. Because again, we can't see. And number six, it's not about understanding. It's about trusting it's about trusting him. That, that's how we wait on God when, when life is hard. It's to trust him, that he is the one in control, that he is all good, and that he is all knowing, and he works all things out for our good. And then we, right, and then we finished up yesterday, or yes, last week, talking about how ultimately God didn't remove our suffering, but he entered into our suffering alongside of us. He didn't leave us alone in our suffering. He came to the earth and suffered with us us and for us. Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, the perfect human being, died a horrific, cruel death on the cross and suffered the agony of the Father turning his back on him so that ultimately our suffering then on this life would not be in vain, that there would be hope. God chose to suffer right along with us. And so that's where we have been in the last few weeks. It's a big subject that we probably should come back to once in a while. And I would encourage you, if you missed any of the, the messages, you can go back and listen to them. Because of this technology push now, we are loading everything up on YouTube, as well as our SoundCloud page. You can listen there or watch on YouTube. But this week, we're going to wrap up by talking about waiting on God in the biggest possible sense. We're going to talk about waiting on God to finish his redemptive work here on, on the earth. We're going to talk about waiting on God right, to come back and make all things right. When God finally returns, when Christ finally comes back, 
Because as Christians, if there's anything that we are really looking forward to, it is that, the promise that Jesus will come back and make all things right and all things new. That is our hope as Christians. That is where we, what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the time, as it says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We are waiting desperately for that time. We are waiting for the great and glorious day when Jesus will come back and finally put everything right again. And everything will remain right again forever and ever and ever. That is what we're waiting for. That is our hope. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about waiting on God to finish his redemptive plan. Waiting on Jesus to come back. Now, please let me start off by saying, what we're going to be talking about is how. How we need to wait for Christ to return. We're going to be talking about how to wait as Christians for Christ to return. And I say that because, because we're going to talk about how we're to live. We're going to talk about how to behave. We're going to talk about how we're to act as Christ followers as we actively wait for, for that day. So let me be clear. Today's sermon is not going to be about the timing of Christ's return. So if that's what you're hoping for, I hate to disappoint you. That's not what we're talking about. Because here's the truth. I'm going to be right up in front and tell you the truth. No one knows. Okay? And in fact, if you need to write that down, then write that down. No one knows. Right? The Bible makes it clear. Nobody knows. And somebody tells you, hey, I know when Jesus is coming back. I know the day. I know the dates. I know even the year. Then you can just say, you're a liar because nobody knows. Even Jesus said, nobody knows. So we're not going to talk about the date of when Christ is we're going to return. And today's conversation is not going to be about governments or COVID-19 signs of the time, right? We're not going to be talking about who the Antichrist is, because again, nobody knows that either. In fact, when I was a kid, all the way up to my young adult days, you know, people didn't really talk to me about the gospel. They talked to me about the end times. I was surrounded by Christians, but nobody ever really shared the gospel with me, but they told me all about the book of Revelation, Right? And they talked about, the one thing I heard about, oh, I mean, what I remember from my childhood is the conversations about the Antichrist. It was Nikita Khrushchev, then it was Ronald Reagan, then it was Mikhail Gorbachev because he had that really weird thing on his head. You know what I mean? Yeah. And people still today are still speculating, by the way, right? I mean, some people say that it was Barack Obama, and then some people are even saying today that it's Donald Trump, and some people say that it's Pope Francis, and now people are on the bandwagon saying, hey, it's Bill Gates, Right? But understand that throughout all of history, that people have been speculating, even Martin Luther speculated, that the Pope then was the Antichrist, right? People have always speculated about this, but here's the answer. Nobody knows, right? Nobody knows. And here's the thing. The only people who claim to know are those people who are trying to sell you more of their books. And what you need to do is realize that if, if you wait five years to buy that book, it'll be outdated and it'll be discredited. But then they'll have another book for you to, to read, okay? Because they have lots of them. And so we're not talking about any of those things today. All right, today's conversation is not going to be schemes of eschatology either, right? The theology of the end times. Because there are a number of differing views, and there are lots of people who passionately defend each and every one of them, all of them thinking that they are right. 
Right? You talk about a reason for Christians to argue, that's the one. Right? So today we're not going to be talking about things like preterism or premillennialism or interadvental amillennialism. It's a mouthful and it's a real word. And we're not going to talk about hyperdispensationalism or covenant theology or even 1689 federalism. And you're like, I don't even know what that is. That's okay. We're not going to be talking about any of those things today. Not that, that we won't talk about those things at some point in the future. I've been studying this particular subject, by the way, for years, years. And so I'm hoping to do a theology class where we can actually academically unpack these things in a calm, biblical manner where we can rationally talk about the differing points of view. So suffice it to say, we will not be talking about how America is going to fit into the, the scheme of Daniel or Revelation. And we're not going to talk about whether or not the, the mark of the beast is a tattoo or, or an RFID chip injected under your skin or any such thing. Okay? So again, I hate to disappoint you, but that's not where we're going today. Today's concern is, isn't so much how the end times will work itself out or even when. But instead, it's about how we are to live and how we are to carry on and how we're to conduct our lives as Christ followers while we're waiting for that time. How are we supposed to live as we wait for Christ to return, whether it's tomorrow or another thousand years from now? And the reason we're going to be taking this approach is because the church in the past has fallen into two extremes that have been very dangerous. There are two extreme views that actually have been terribly counterproductive for the church and even the mission of Christ, which is spreading the gospel. Right? And, and the first extreme perspective is what I call status quo. It's this perspective where Christians think that the return of Christ is really just metaphorical and maybe even something that's a long way off. And it's not going to happen really any time soon. There's no sense that Christ could return at any moment. And because of that, there's no real sense or urgency to live a holy life. There's no call to live in holiness. And there's certainly no urgency to get the message of Christ out to the rest of the world. People who adopt this view, who think the world is just going to, you know, they're going to continue, it's going to continue on like it is. It's, you know, status quo. And among these people are people you know, who typically have nominal Christian views, right? They don't really think a lot about eternity. They don't really have a sense of urgency because they think, they don't think about death. And they certainly don't think about the fact that Jesus could literally come at any moment. Right? They don't believe that Jesus can come like right now. And so they're not really worried about the end coming and they've grown really comfortable, right? And, and, and they look at the world and they think, that there's really not any cause to alarm. Yes, bad things happen, but really, you know, things have, bad things have always happened. Things have gone on like they've always gone on. It's, again, status quo. Now, the second perspective is the complete exact opposite of that. It's the, the perspective that I call the sky is falling, right? It, it, this is where Christians are so focused that, on the fact that Christ can, can, can come back any second that it's really all they ever think about, it's all they ever talk about. And I have to tell you, there are a lot of Christians who are like this. Right? When I was trying to figure out more about Christianity when I was young, I heard a lot about the end times, but nobody really actually explained the gospel. 
Right? That's the truth. There are lots of Christians who are obsessed with the end times, especially right now, because of this global pandemic. There's a lot more interest in that. Not realizing right, that there, there has been even more devastating global pandemics in the past. The 1918 Spanish flu, for example, killed 20 to 40 million people in a population of just over 1.5 billion people. We've lost 311,000 worldwide, which is tragic, in a population of 7.5 billion people. Not to mention just World War II by itself, 75 million people gone. And believe me, people at the times that those were happening were thinking, time, the end times are here, right? Jesus is going to be here tomorrow. Right? And, and Christians who are focused on the end times obsessively, continually talk about prophecy and raptures and timelines, and they talk about how, how the events that they see right now today in the news sound just like what they're reading in the Bible. That, the, that they have a Bible in one hand and a news app in the other. I used to say newspaper, but news app, because nobody has a newspaper anymore. And they try to put the pieces together, trying to figure out the grand cosmic puzzle that they've been given. And though you can't fault them for watching for the return of Christ, because we are called to watch for the return of Christ, right? We are told that his return is imminent. We should be watchful all the time. We should be ready at every moment. You cannot fault anyone for, for being watchful. But we can certainly fault them because of this obsession with the end times has cost the church dearly in the last 100 years. Dearly in the last 100 years. One of the things that we have talked about on multiple occasions is that there is a dominant perspective in the, the, the evangelical church today in America, which is called moralistic therapeutic deism. We have unpacked this before, but let me remind you what it is. It is the idea, just this theological idea, that Christianity is about me being a good person. That's moralism, right? And, and because of that, then God will make my life better. Like God wants me to be happy. That's the therapeutic part of it, Right? And that God is really isn't even active in my day-to-day -day life unless I ask him for something. He just kind of lets me do my own thing. That's the deistic view of God. It's not a, a sovereign God. It is just a God that lets things go, right? And, and as we've talked about, the reason why this perspective is dominant in the church today is because really we have failed to teach and reteach the foundational orthodox doctrines and theology of the Christian faith. The, the truth is that the church has become theologically anemic in the, in the 20th and 21st centuries. And one of the leading causes for this anemia is the church's obsession in the last couple of generations with non-essential doctrines, such as the end, times, um, uh, end times perspectives. And, and they've done so at the expense of the essential doctrines, like the inerrancy of Scripture, the, the sovereignty of God and the divinity of Christ himself. And the result has been a theologically shallow church raising up a theologically shallow membership who are not equipped to stand their ground with their faith. That is why so many kids go off to college and get their heads chopped off when they first have they, they, their first philosophy class or first biology class and become atheists. They're not equipped to stand their ground, much less effectively evangelize the lost. If you don't believe me, look around at the world. And the result has been that preaching from, in pulpits across the land have been echoing the message that you need to get saved, otherwise you're going to be left behind. You don't want to get left behind, do you? Well, no, I don't want to get left behind. Well, then pray this prayer and invite Jesus into your heart and you won't be left behind. 
That is the message that was preached throughout my entire childhood. You don't want to get left behind, do you? Well, then you better get saved. Brothers and sisters, that's not even the gospel. It's, it's not the gospel. Right? The gospel is that you're a rebel sinner against God and his wrath abides on you. And being left behind during the time of tribulation is going to be the least of your worries. Because meeting God face to face after you die in your sin, that's the thing that you need to worry about. That's the thing that you should be most concerned about. You need to worry about the fact that your sin has earned you an eternity in suffering as the wrath of God is poured out for you forever and ever and ever and ever. That is the bad news. That no one will escape that. So being left behind to suffer in the world is not your greatest worry. But the good news is that Christ came into the world to rescue you from your sin and God's coming wrath. So you don't have to be afraid no matter what you face in this life. You won't have to be afraid to meet God either by death or by his return. And so the last part of the 20th century has been marked with this attitude. We don't need to worry about teaching theology. We don't need to teach doctrine because doctrines divide. We don't need theology. Just give me Jesus. We don't need to talk about those things. Just make sure people have their fire insurance because Jesus is coming back any second. This is the sky is falling perspective. Not to say that we don't talk about the end times or think about them or even wonder if it's near. It's just it can't be the focus of our lives. So you have that and the status quo perspective. And what you have then is really the extremes that have cost the church so much. But the truth is neither of these is how God has intended for us to live. And neither is these how God has intended us to behave. He doesn't want us to be complacent as if the fact that, that Jesus won't come back. He doesn't want us to take the status quo view. But he also doesn't want us to be obsessed like the sky is falling either. The fact of the matter is God wants us to be ready to meet Christ at any moment. To always be ready. Whether by our death or by our imminent return. But at the same time, he wants us to be focused and wants us to be busy working to further his kingdom and accomplishing the works that he has established for us to do. Let's be really clear about that. He wants us to be feeding. He wants us to be loving and nurturing and caring. He wants us to meet people's needs and share the gospel with everyone that we come in contact with. He wants us to be ready to meet him at any moment, whether it's through our death or his imminent return. He wants us to live our daily lives, right, waiting for him to come back. He wants us to be alert and attentive and ready and anticipating his arrival, whether it's five minutes from now or 500 years from now. That's what he wants. And so what I'd like to do is share with you today, a, you know, a couple of scriptures of what that looks like. And the first text I want to share with you is what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, to redeem us from all 
lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Now, in this text, there are two things I want to point out that I think that will help us to understand what we need to do and what it looks like for us to wait for, for Christ to return. Number one, he says the grace of God has appeared and it is training us. It is teaching us. It is, it is shaping us. Right? And this grace is training us for a purpose. And that purpose is to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. As we wait for God to return, we are to repent and to turn away from our sins and the lusts of the world. Right? The grace of God trains us for that. Right? The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit trains us to continue to repent and turn from our sins and renounce the passions of, of the world. It trains us then also to live, it says, self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. It does that as we wait for Christ to return. So number one, waiting on Christ to return means we are being trained and we are growing by the grace of God in order to renounce or repent or turn away from our sins and the temptations that the world throws at us, right? And, and we are to, to learn while we wait to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. And godly simply means to be God-like, who is holy. So what that means simply for us is waiting on God is about growing in personal holiness, that's what it means to wait on God, is we need to grow in our own individual lives in personal holiness. You see, the first thing that we need to see is waiting on God is about, is about growing closer to him through holiness, being more like him. It's about killing sin in our lives through the grace of God and, and seeking to live by his power, obedient to his word. Now, the sad truth is, I know dozens of people who profess to be Christians who are happy to tell you everything that they know about the millennium and about the rapture and about the beast and the antichrist. And they're happy to explain in graphic detail how the book of Daniel will work everything out and, 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 and tell you how Revelation fits together with Daniel. And they're happy to argue with you and tell you that you're wrong if you see things differently. They're experts in these end times perspectives, but then you look at their actual lives, the way they're actually living, it's nothing at all like Paul is describing here. Right? They will tell you things like you need to be rapture ready, but then they themselves are not living the upright, godly, self-controlled lives that, 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 that Paul says that we need to live. They're not growing in personal holiness. And, and the truth is they have no desire to do so. And by the same token, there are others who tell you, oh, I love Jesus so much and I love his people, but there's no urgency in them to meet him face to face. They, they don't take seriously the idea that one day you will stand before him and give an account to God for your life and what you have done and, and what you have done for the kingdom of God. In fact, many of those people who claim you know, to trust Christ really have no use for personal holiness at all. They have believed that they've made their profession of faith and they think that that's it, I'm good. I had somebody actually drive up to the church. I've seen this guy a couple times. He's actually been in here once in a while. Right? He's pulled up to the back of church one evening after youth group and he gets out and he staggers a little bit and he goes to the back of the steps and he kneels down like he's, he's praying. I could tell that he'd been drinking a little bit. And I, and I asked him, I said, hey, man, what's going on? And he said, I just, 
I just need a little Jesus. I was like, what? What do you mean? He's, you know, he's like, yeah, I've been bad lately. You know, I've been wandering away from him. I just need to come here and get a little Jesus again. And then he sits back in his truck and he grabs the beer, the open beer that he had in the, the console. And I said, you think that you need a little Jesus? And he's like, yeah. I said, you need to repent and believe the gospel. <laughs> right? And he proceeded to tell me, oh, no, I'm good. Right? Because one day I went to this church down south, this mega church, and, and uh, this famous preacher baptized me and, 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 and told me that I was saved. And I'm, so I'm good. Right? Even though that every day he revels in drunkenness and, every, and he's been divorced four times. And he's promiscuous by his own admission. I even said, hey, you need to repent of your sins. He goes, well, I love the ladies, so I can't give that up. I'm good. And I warned him. Like, I mean, I warned him. I said, I, I can't judge your heart because that's one thing I can't do. I'm not God. I don't know exactly what's happening with you. But if I were you, I would worry. If I were you, I would examine myself in light of what the scripture actually says. Because I think that possibly, probably more than likely, you're in danger of hell. But he just brushed me off. Says, I'm good. You know, me and Jesus are good. And then he, dro he drove off. And believe me, you'd be surprised how many people live like that. They made a profession of faith at one point in their life. And then they live like demons the rest of their life, thinking that everything's fine. Understand, that is not at all how we are called as Christ followers to live. Like, we are not called to live that. We are called to walk in holiness before a holy God, waiting for his return. We are to, by his grace, to actively grow in obedience to him and pursue holiness in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, because it's not going to happen. But there's something in those who love God who will begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And God loves holiness, and he hates sin in all forms. That's why I tell people that all the time, before you master the book of Revelation, why don't you master the book of Romans? It'll be better for you. Before you master eschatology, you need to master the theology of God and, and, and the theology of the church and the theology of man. Before you try to figure out how the last days play out, you need to figure out how to walk in personal holiness before God, waiting for Christ to return. You need to bear fruit for the kingdom. The Bible says, be holy because I am holy. We are all called by God to walk in personal holiness. And believe me, I want you to understand, God will be much more pleased with you if he comes back finding you engaged in what he's called you to do and doing what Paul says here instead of actually having the puzzle figured out. In fact, take a look at the second thing that Paul says here. He says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us of all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good work. Notice that. Zealous. That's not even like excited. That's like over the top, right? Zealous for good works. That's the second thing we need to take notice of. God wants us to be purified, and he wants us to walk in holiness, but he also wants us to be zealous for good works. In other words, he wants us to passionately be engaged in service. The good works that he has already called us to do. The good works that he's already prepared for us to do. In fact, look at, at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. He, Paul tells us why we were saved. In verse 8, we get the gospel. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God so that no one may, not the result of works so that no one may, no one may boast. For, there's the word, for because we are his workmanship or his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. And what's that purpose? For good works, which God, what? Prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God already has something he wants you to accomplish. God already has things he wants you to do. Understand that God has already planned things for you. He has good works that he wants you to do. That is why you were saved. Holy Spirit, testify. (laughs) That's why you were saved. You were saved by grace through faith, right? And as such, he has something for you to accomplish, which means you have work to do before Christ returns. You see, if Jesus comes back 100 years from now, then you get to spend the rest of your life getting things done for his kingdom. You get to spend the rest of your life serving the king here on earth. But if he comes back tomorrow, hopefully he will find you engaged, busy doing the things he's called you to do. But in either case, he will be glorified. So number one, we're to wait on God by training for godliness and, and, and walking in holiness. Number two, we wait on God by being busy doing the work that he's called us to. We wait on God by serving him. The second text I want to share with you is from the Apostle Peter. Second Peter chapter 3 begins in verse 1. This now is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, I just want to stop here real quick because I'm telling you there's, there's, if there's a text that gets people twisted up, it's probably this one because there's a tendency in a lot of people to obsess about this text and read Peter's words in the light of their context of where they are today. They will read, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they'll read that, and they will ignore the context of the text, but instead they will look at the world around them and say, you see, Jesus has got to be coming back any minute now because we're living in the last days because there are scoffers everywhere. And people are following, you know, their own sinful desires, which means we must be living in the last generation. It can't be any other way. It's right there in the scriptures. It says so. Well, actually, there have been scoffers scoffing, and there have been people who've been following their sinful desires since Christ left the earth and even before. So hear me. Peter's point is not to tell you when the end's going to happen, His point is you need to be ready for when Christ returns. You need to be ready to meet him. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, there is, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This right here, he's talking about the status quo view, that people don't think that Christ is ever going to return. For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water 
and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter is promising and basically saying God's judgment is absolutely coming. You can count on the fact that God's judgment is coming, and when it does, it is going to be hell. Right? But he says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Or, in other words, your sense of time and God's sense of time are not the same. Right? And he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now you have to see this. Right? He said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Right? And he's not slow as other people count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that people should perish, but they should reach repentance. The reason why Christ has not already come, the reason why God has not already judged the world is because he's been patiently withholding his wrath and his judgment at this moment so that people would repent and be saved. That's what he's saying. Judgment, God's judgment will come, right? And his judgment is being stored up and it's going to be poured out. But right now, God is patiently withholding those things so people come to faith. In fact, let me show you the picture. Here's the picture. God with one hand is holding back his judgment and his wrath. Right now, he's holding it back. And with the other, he is calling people to himself. Come to me, right? He's telling people to repent and believe the gospel. He's saying, come. He's calling people to him. Right? But a time will be coming when God will then put both his hands down and then it's going to be too late. That is what Peter is talking about. Now, what does that mean for you and me who are saved? What does that mean? We, well, what it means is as we wait for the return of Christ, we need to be evangelizing the lost and calling people to repent and believe the gospel. That's what it means because we have no idea when the time is over. Right? We don't know when the dam on, God, on God's wrath is going to burst and burst forth and it'll be too late. Right? God is being patient right now. Every person you witness to and get saved now is another soul saved before God return, but Christ returns in, in fury. Because the fact of the matter is, when God judges the world, it's going to be late, too late. We don't get second chances. Which means you have been given this time to help people to repent and believe the gospel. You've been given this time to call your loved ones to repent in faith. You've been given this time to preach the gospel. You've given this time to share with your community and the world around you the hope of Jesus Christ. Right? And so we should actively wait on God by sharing Jesus with the world. That's how we need to wait on God. But then look at verse number 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief because it can come at any moment. Right? And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, which means good works and bad works will be exposed when the end comes. And he says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? All right? He's basically saying we need to be holy as God is holy, like we've already pointed out. 
waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and new earth which righteous, which, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, right, here's the key. In light of all of that, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. You have to see this. It says be found. When that happens, when that day comes, to be found, let God find you without spot or blemish or living in holiness, right, which we've been talking about. But he says to also be found at peace. Now I want you to think about this. Peter says, as you wait on Christ, as you wait for God to come and judge the world around you, you need to be found at peace. Now, this is important because if there's anything I know about many of you, not all of you, if there's anything I know about many of you, and that many of your lives, is that you right now are not at peace. Many of you were not at peace. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, okay? But right now, many of you, right now, are stressed out. Many of you are so frustrated and you are so worried about the future. And COVID-19 has exposed the fact that you are not at peace. The nonstop media coverage over this pandemic and the fear of death and the life of social isolation has revealed you are not right now at peace. Many of you are fearful. Many of you are worried. Many of you are anxious. Many of you are angry. You're worried about your family members. You're worried about money. You're worried about your job. You're worried about getting sick. You're worried about those you love getting sick. You're stressed about relationships. You're stressed about the economy. You're stressed because people don't agree with you. And see, the way, see things the way that you do. That goes for both sides of the spectrum, by the way. Some of you are so wound up and stressed about politics because we are now, right, in another election year. Some of you are so anxious with gut-wrenching turmoil at the prospect that Donald Trump just might get reelected. And others of you are experiencing the exact same kind of turmoil at the prospect that he might not. Forgetting that God is the one who puts people in power anyway. Many of you are not at peace right now. In fact, some of you sitting in this room, right, or even at your home, have already wandered off, as I've talked, thinking about the things that are stressing you out, thinking about the things that you were worried about, thinking about the things that make you fearful. You're thinking about the things that you need to get done after you leave here or after the live stream ends. Some of you are thinking about already things you need to do tomorrow just to keep your head above water. You are not at peace. And even worse, some of you are struggling with bitterness and unforgiveness and frustration with other people. And, and, and the bitterness that other people have for other people who have differing opinions is staggering to me, especially amongst Christians. 
There are people so dug into their perspective and how they see things that they have little patience and little grace for those who see things differently. Again, this is even amongst Christians. Many of you are not at peace with the people in your life. But here it says in the text, right there in this letter, to be spotless and to be found by God at peace. When Christ returns, you should be at peace. We are to be at peace as we wait on God. Hear me. We are to be at peace as we wait on God. And that goes for all the ways that we wait on God. In our devotion time, when we wait on God for life to change, when we wait on God when life is hard, when we wait on God for Christ to return, all of those things need to be lived in a way where we're at peace as we wait for him. But how do you get there? How do you achieve that peace? Well, the answer has been the same all along. It is about your theology and what you know about God. You see, if you truly believe and understand that God is sovereign and in control, and that he is all-knowing, and that he is all-good, and that he will work all things out for your good, even this, if you truly understand that you are completely dependent upon him for everything, then peace should naturally follow. Because your only real choice is to do what? Trust in him. That's your only choice. I mean, if you believe what you say that you believe, if if your theology is correct and the Bible is true, your choice is to trust God and allow him to work things out in his timing. That's how you have peace. That you trust that God is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he's promised to do. In fact, the reason why so many people don't have peace is because they're still trying to control the things that they have no control over. The reason why people don't have peace is because they're still not fully trusting God to handle things. The reason why the people don't have peace is because they keep trying to sit on the throne of their own heart and be in control. They keep trying to to dethrone God. We keep forgetting that God is sovereign and in control, and we're not. You see, you're not, you're to be found at peace because being at peace is the fruit of a heart that trusts in God. If God is for us, then who can be against us? That's what we tell ourselves, right? That's the truth. If God is for us, then who can be against us? God has promised to what? Never leave us or what? Forsake us. It's a promise from the sovereign king of the universe. It's as immutable, it's as immutable as gravity. He's promised to work all things out for your good. Even this. Peace is the fruit of the heart that fully trusts in God. We're to be at peace as we wait expectantly for his return. And then in verse 15 it says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, who wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, As he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. So please understand that Peter himself struggled to understand Paul's letters. So that means you probably will too, okay? Right? But he says, There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. And Peter just really quick calls Paul's letters scriptures. That means Peter recognizes the 
the authority of the Holy Spirit in Paul's writings. And then he says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right? And, and, and notice what he says. You're to take care not to get carried away with error of, of lawless people and lose your own stability. In other words, be careful not to get caught up and swept away by false doctrine and false theology. Right? Because if you do, you'll lose your theological stability. Right? As we say over and over again, what? Theology matters. But, he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter makes it clear we need to protect our hearts and minds from false doctrine by growing in grace and the knowledge, what we know about Jesus Christ, which means we're to wait in return, for the return of Christ by maturing in our understanding of who he is. We need to be learning more and more about him. We need to be learning to be more like him, which means we need to do all those spiritual disciplines that we talk about all the time by reading the word, studying the word, meditating on the word, hearing the gospel and the word being preached, praying, right? Having that quiet time where you're waiting for God, fellowship with the, with the saints, corporate worship, small group Bible studies, right? all of those things. One of the most important ways that we wait for, for Christ to return is that we stay busy learning more and more and more about him and learning to be more like him. Now, the last text I want to share with you is the one we opened up with, and real quickly I'll go through it. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, he says, For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. And I want you to understand, if somebody knew what suffering was, it was Paul. Okay. I mean, the guy was beaten multiple times. Like, he was taken and stoned to death, almost stoned to death. Like, they threw rocks at him, and they thought he was dead. He was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked, right? Imprisoned twice. Ultimately, he was beheaded. So, I mean, he knew what suffering was, and he says that the suffering that I'm facing now, that you're facing now, is not anything worth, it's not even significant compared to the glory that's to await us. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God, for the creation has, has, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from, from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. In other words, you think you're waiting for Christ to return? All of creation's waiting for that. All of creation is awaiting for the return of the king. But then verse 23 says, but not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first for the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And there's just two, la two little notes on how we need to wait for Christ in this that I want to share with you. Number one, we need to be patient and wait for Christ. We need to wait in patience. And then we need to wait in hope 
right? As the world continues to turn, as darkness continues to grow, as Christians, you know, we continue to hold on to God. We need to be patient, waiting for the return of Christ, and we need to keep hope alive. We need to continue to remind ourselves, right, and think about our hope, the hope of the gospel. Paul says that our suffering is nothing compared to this hope. Now, some of you would say, I don't know. I'm suffering pretty bad. But he says our hope is much greater. Well, if that's true, then why do so many of us despair? Why do so many of us lose heart? Why have so many of us getting discouraged when, when things are happening around us? Why are we so fearful because of this virus? Because we have failed in our hearts to keep this hope alive by focusing really on what our hope is. You see, our hope is not to live a pain-free, problem-free life. That is not the hope that we have. You might think that is, but it's not. And our hope is not to be materially rich, though I think you wish for that. I think all of us kind of rich wish for that. And our hope is not for everything in this life to be perfect, because guess what? It won't be. And our hope is not for us to get our way all the time, even though you think that's what you want. I promise you, that's not what you want. And our hope isn't even the fact that we're waiting for a vaccine for the COVID-19. And, and our hope isn't even the fact that we're hoping that every, no one else gets sick. That's not our ultimate hope. We wish that, but that's not our hope. Our hope is bigger than that. Our hope is bigger than all of life. Our hope is not to have a perfect marriage, though that is possible with Christ. Our hope is not... To, to be better people, though Christ can make us better people. Our hope is not that God will solve all of our problems, though his wisdom can certainly help us with that. Our hope is when this life is over, either by death or by Christ's own return, our hope is that when we meet God, we're going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That you're going to hear the words, welcome home, my child. Our hope is that when we stand before God on the last day, at the last judgment, all the charges, when they're read against us, we will hear the verdict, not guilty, because they've been paid in full by Christ. Our hope is when we step across the line into eternity, that we will forever stand in the life-giving presence of God our Savior, where there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow, and our, all of our relationships will be unstained and perfect. And we will be reunited with those that we love. That we'll be reunited with those that we lost way too soon. That we will be reunited with our, our, our moms and our dads and our grandparents and our children. And even better, that we will not ever lose them again in all eternity. That right there is our hope. That's our hope. Not the government's going to solve your problems. That's not your hope. Our hope is 100% Jesus Christ. And when we despair, when we lose heart, it's because we have, we have lost sight of that hope. And we put our hope into something else. But please let me remind you, in the words of the hymn writer, our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. As you go your way, as you live the rest of your life, being at home or in here, walk out of here or turn off the live stream, reminding yourself that your hope is Christ alone, not anything else. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.